Amen. So good. I echo Jared's words. It's so good to be in worship with you today. Uh, I'm very thankful you're here. I'm more thankful that God's here. He's doing a work among us, and I think part of that work is found in our passage today. We find ourselves in a year-long study of the life of Jesus, and for uh, quite a while now, we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to remain there through the remainder uh, of this series. And so if you have a Bible, please go to Luke chapter 19. We are going to pick up the text that was read for us in verse 41. And as we come to this particular passage today, we see that Jesus sees and enters Jerusalem. And we see that the shift that took place in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, of Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem is, is now becoming a reality for him. If you look at Luke's gospel, there are things that happen before this journey begins, and then in chapter 9, there are things that happen on the way there and then the events that take place over the next several days that we'll be looking at over the next several weeks. And the text opens up in verse 41 and says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. That famous verse that sometimes confuses us. You know, there are two things that in many ways we think are opposed to each other. There are two words we normally do not put in normal sentences, and those two words are the words peace and tears. Peace and tears. Many times we think that if I have peace, then I will not have tears, or we think that if I do have tears, then, then peace is nowhere to be found, nowhere to be seen, nowhere to be experienced. Again, these in our mind, at least, we think peace and tears are kind of like oil and water. But at the same time, we have the author of peace here in our text looking at the city, the city of Jerusalem, and he's crying over her. And the question is, is why? Why? Jesus looks at this city full of people that he loves, and instead of feeling disgust at their sins, which he could have felt, instead of feeling disgust at their sins, he desires to save them. He looks at this city full of people, and instead of looking down on them, Jesus' approach is he wants to lift them up. Jesus looks at this city so full of people, and instead of saying to the Father, why don't we just start over with a new people? Instead of saying, let's start over, he says, I want to redeem them. As Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, he could have very easily been justified in calling down fire from heaven to destroy it. And again, start afresh and anew. But instead, he wants to rain down something else. While he could be completely justified in all of those feelings and all those actions, Jesus wants to bring something to bear. He wants something to take place, and that something is that he wants Jerusalem. And everyone who experiences what Jerusalem has to offer, he wants them to experience this thing called peace. This past Wednesday night, 
we began looking at this theme, we mentioned that Jerusalem means foundation of peace. Foundation of peace. Jesus is making this journey that he's been on since Luke chapter 9 to the city that is called foundation of peace. And I do not believe the symbolism is uh, an accident. Instead, I think it is accurate. And I think that Jesus here is going to Jerusalem in order to do a new work of peace for the world. And I say for the world because I I do not think that Jesus is just doing a new work of peace in the world. I believe he's doing a new work of peace for the world. He's going to the foundation of peace. He's going to the foundation in order to be the cornerstone of that foundation. We see that language used in Peter's writings. We see it used in Paul's writings. They got it from Isaiah. God spoke through Isaiah many years ago in Isaiah 28, 16, and 17, and he said, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And that verse goes on to finish out, The one who trusts will never be dismayed. What we see is that Jesus, he himself, is establishing himself as the foundation's cornerstone. And in so doing, he is establishing himself as the person of peace, the place of stability for any who would come to him. And on this day, Jesus looks at this city, the foundation of peace, and tears flow down his cheeks because they haven't experienced it yet. They haven't experienced the peace that he desires to bring to the city and the people who inhabit that city. And he wants them to know the way of peace and the way to peace. He even tells us this. He reveals his desire in verse 22 when he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. As tears are streaming down his cheeks, he's looking at these people and his heart's desire is that they would truly know the nature of and the person of peace. And of all people, they should have known this, right? Of all people, they should have known. They are the ones who have been entrusted with the covenants. They were the ones who have been entrusted with all the prophecies. They are the ones who have been entrusted with all the promises of God. They were the ones who were entrusted with the very words of the Father. And they should have known the heart of the Father because of this. They should have known the Father's heart for peace in and of Jerusalem. That is to flow to the whole world. And yet... This reality has eluded them because they are experiencing nothing, or I should say everything but peace. And because of this, Jesus' heart longs for them to experience a heavenly peace that the physical land and the law cannot give them. And God has been calling out to them and talking about this kind of peace for a very long time. All you have to do is do a quick run throughout the Old Testament to see God's call and his desire for peace, to impart peace to his people and through them to the whole world. You see it over and over again. Job 22, verse 1. God says, yield now and be at peace with him. Yield now. If you'll yield your life, you can be at peace with him. And it says, thereby good will come to you. 
Or Isaiah, Isaiah 27, verse 5. Oh, let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. God repeats himself. God's cry for his people is to understand just how important this peace is, but to understand that there is only one source of peace. The problem was, though, the people did not hear him. And the people did not hear him because they would not listen. They did not hear his call for peace because they would not listen. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Am I the only one in the room that's missed God before simply because I wouldn't listen? Now would be a great time to say, can I get a witness? But I don't know if we want to. Yeah, I got one. There we go. How many times have we not been able to hear God's call for peace in our life simply because we would not listen? How many times have we heard, but we didn't have the courage to follow? You know, so many times we put so many labels on God. We like to start sentences with, I think God is like. So many times we put different attitudes and attributes on God. Well, I think God is like this, or I think God is like that. And many times we just forget to ask the question, how has God already revealed himself? Who has God revealed himself to be? We forget verses like 1 Corinthians 14, 33, where it says that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. We forget all that God has already spoken through the prophets and through the epistles. We forget that God has self-disclosed himself. He has made himself known. He's revealed his nature and character to us. And over and over we see that God is a God of peace. But so many times we simply will not listen. Neither were they listening when Jesus entered on this day. And because they were not listening on this day, Jesus goes on in verse 42 and he says, but now these things that I'm talking about, they are hidden from your eyes. Because you would not listen. You would not listen to this call for peace and this invitation to come to the author of peace. Now these things have been hidden. What Jesus is saying is that the people in Jerusalem are not going to comprehend, at least in the moment, what is about to take place there. Jesus is going to make his way to the cross, and it's not going to make any sense to them. But in retrospect, Paul is going to write to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1.20, and he's going to say that through Jesus, what he was doing was reconciling all things to himself. And he is making peace through the blood of his cross. Again, Paul's going to write that in retrospect and make that clear. But Jesus is saying, as we go through these events, they're not going to understand. They're not going to know what is taking place. Jesus is saying now that these, there are these deep truths and these heavenly mysteries. They're going to be hidden from these people. But then he says there's going to be a visitation that's going to come. That visitation is not going to be a visitation by God. It's going to be by a group of people who have perfected the art of devastation. And that is the Romans. Jesus tells them that the Romans are going to come. In verse 43, he says, For days will come, uh, will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, down, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
Jesus says, because you're going to miss this moment, there's going to come a day of reckoning. And there's a bad group of people coming your way. Jesus is pointing to, a fa- or pointing to an event that's going to take place in 70 A.D., not too many years removed from Jesus speaking these words on this day. And in 70 A.D., the Jerusalem walls are going to be sieged, the temple is going to be destroyed, and all of that is going to fulfill Jesus' prophecy here. But Jesus knows all this, and still he's on a mission of peace. And then what we see in verses 45 and following is that in this one dramatic act, Jesus does something that will be a sign for all generations to come. And what Jesus is going to show us in verses 45 and following is that he's going to teach us what the path of peace requires. What the path of peace requires. Notice verse 45 says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Notice that the text there in verse 45, it starts with, but he entered the temple. You see, if we're going to have peace in our life, real lasting peace in our life, that peace comes through and in the presence of Jesus. On this day, Jesus walked into the temple, and God's Spirit, God himself, filled the temple in a brand new way. This was not just the presence of God that was in the Holy of Holies behind the veil. Now God in the flesh has walked into the temple. And there's a reaction to this. Because the immediate actions and reactions to Jesus being in the temple on this day speak volumes to us. Jesus enters the temple. His presence is now there. And the first thing that he does is that we see this holy act of driving out those things that should not be there. He enters through the door, and the text just tells us he began to drive out those who sold. He walks in, and he pushes some things out. Jesus declares to the people that my house shall be a house of prayer. My house is supposed to be this meeting space between God and man. My house is to be this place that is holy and common ground where the business of the soul can be handled unhindered by sin and unhindered by the separation that comes as a result of sin. And then the text tells us, it's just moving along, verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. Notice how quickly things are moving. Jesus enters the temple. He drives out those who are there. He makes the pronouncement that my house shall be a house of prayer. And then the next thing we know, he's teaching every day there. And of course, some people don't like this. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words, as Jared referenced earlier. Notice that Jesus takes up the task of instructing the people so that whoever would hear, whoever would believe, whoever would trust in him, they would know who he is, they would know what mission he is on, and the people are captivated, hanging on every word. And each word is yet another revelation of heaven in the temple. The temple is the place that was designed to be where heaven and earth come together. The temple was the place where the people would stream in to worship God, and then they would carry that message out to the rest of the world. And now God himself is in the temple in a new way, and he's teaching the people. 
And while we see this heavenly presence of God now in the temple and the earthly presence of people, we know that God and people have been separated by a veil. But it's as if Jesus is instructing the people and he's pulling back the veil just a little bit so that people can see behind it. And in all of this, we see Jesus reveals to us the path of peace. Do you see it? You see, everything that happened in the temple is now fulfilled in Christ and then imparted to us when we believe. That compound sentence is very important. Everything that happened in the temple is now fulfilled in Christ and is imparted to us when we believe. In the temple, there were sacrifices. Those sacrifices, there's no need for them anymore. That is all fulfilled in Christ. And his sacrifice is imparted to our life. His atonement is imparted into our life when we believe. You see how this works? Same thing with what's taking place right here. You have the one who is the author of peace going to the foundation of peace, Jerusalem itself, to be the cornerstone of that peace. And we see him telling us how to walk the path of peace. It starts with this. If you do not have the presence of Jesus, you will not have peace. No peace without his presence. Again, remember, Jesus entered the temple on this day. And if you want to have peace in your life, Jesus has to show up, and you have to let him in. If you want to have real peace, he has to show up, and you have to let him in. Just as Jesus walked through the gates, the large doors of the temple on this day, he has to walk through the doors of your life. And the thing about that is, is that there cannot be any door or corridor that's off limits to him. Jesus must have free reign to walk through your life, the interior life, as he sees fit and as pleases him. But you need to be warned about something. The thing you need to be warned about is that Jesus is not a mere observer of the interior of your life. Jesus does not just walk into our life and just try to look at what's there and leave it alone. That's not how he works. In fact, when Jesus shows up, he tends to disrupt things. You see, while there's no peace without his presence, there's also no peace without first being disturbed by his presence. To find lasting peace, I think we must let Christ disrupt and disturb our internal lives. He has to point out what should not be there, and he has to have uh, the decision rights to tell you what you are lacking. Jesus has a way of coming into our life, and he rearranges the mental and emotional and spiritual furniture to set it just so, so that it's fit for his habitation. Because, you see, when God cleans something up, he likes to inhabit that place because God inhabits his, he inhabits what he cleans up. And when everything is set according to its holy order, that's when Jesus does the third thing and he teaches, he instructs. You see, there's no peace without his presence, but there's no peace without first being disturbed by his presence, but there is no peace without him speaking. And Jesus loves to show up and speak truth. He loves to show up and speak life and we, like that first crowd, we must hang on every word. We have to press pause on the demands that we have on our lives so that we can listen. 
we have to set aside and call a time out from the to-do list and the unhealthy demands that we place on ourselves so that we can listen. And boy, we're not good at this. And that's why this thing called peace eludes us so many times. But I want to end with a very simple question. It's a simple question to ask. It's a very hard question to answer. And that question is, do you want peace or do you want relief? Those are two different things. My fear is that most people will say, of course I want peace. But what they really mean is I want relief. Because so many times we think that if peace is going to come into our life, then we have to be a passive participant on our journey, but we're not. It's very active and it's hard. Again, Jesus shows up. He starts walking through the doors. He starts turning over things that sometimes we like those things there. He starts revealing things that should not be in the temple. He starts telling you what is lacking in the temple. On this day, he walked in and said, prayer is supposed to be going on here. It's not. Instead, you're selling. And sometimes Jesus walks into our life and he really wants to bring lasting peace, but we don't want him to rearrange the interior furniture. And so we settle for this thing called relief. We try to develop coping mechanisms. We try to do things like binge-watching television or endlessly scrolling. We do these things just to kind of numb our mind for a little while, to bring some relief to the pressure that we feel from the outside. And we do it all the time. We self-medicate in so many different ways, don't we? And we say we want peace, but we're really just trying to find some momentary relief. I'm here to tell you today, Jesus is about bringing an abiding peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus is not really into just temporarily relieving the pressure. Whenever we travel the road of constantly trying to relieve the pressure, we find ourselves doing things, sometimes unhealthy things, in order to just, again, take some of the pressure off. But what Jesus does is deep heart surgery. He does deep mental surgery, deep emotional surgery. What he does is he goes into the interior of our life and he begins to clean things out and rearrange things, as I've said. But he does this so that it can be a holy habitation. He does this so that by the power of his Holy Spirit, he can indwell us and then we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Which means that the peace that the Holy Spirit provides to us permeates from the inside out. So all the pressure that we're feeling from the outside cannot get in. Because the power to overcome the pressure is residing on the inside. But when everything is empty and void or cluttered by breakable things on the inside, by weak things on the inside, by earthly, non-eternal things on the inside, that pressure crushes us. And we look for relief while we long for peace. I want you to have peace today. I want you to have eternal, lasting peace that comes from the abiding presence of God living in you. He has to walk in your temple. And when he walks in the temple, yes, he will rearrange things. Yes, he will get rid of some things. And yes, he will add some things. But I'm here to tell you, at that point, he'll start instructing again. 
He'll start speaking words of life in your life again. He'll start speaking words of truth that you need to hear to withstand all the pressure that's coming around you. He will do all of that. Every bit of it. If you will desire peace and not just relief. And so I want to plead with you as the band comes up to let him in. Let him come in. Let him move whatever he wants to move. Let him add whatever he wants to add so that we may hear what he has to say and live a life of peace. Amen? Father, thank you that you do not just offer us temporary relief, but you offer us an abiding peace that surpasses all understanding. And Lord, what I know about a room this big, what I know about those who are watching online and on television, is that there's not a one of us here that in some way does not need your peace. So, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit, even now, wherever we are, in this room or not, may we open the door when we hear the knock. Please have free reign to move anything that needs to be moved. Add what needs to be added. And as disturbing as that is, may we embrace that hard process and embrace those hard moments so that we may hear you speak words of life. And then, Lord, the peace will come. So would you come in this moment and meet us in this place?